You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Hello, everybody. There was a uh, confluence of three related events that happened this week that came together to form my talk today. Of course, on Monday, we had the leaking of the Supreme Court documents regarding um, the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade. <clears throat> that was Monday. And then on Wednesday, we had the third anniversary of the passing of Rachel Held Evans, uh, who has meant a lot to a lot of us here at Central. And then, of course, today is, is Mother's Day. Um, and so I actually had another talk all prepared on something else, but then Thursday came and I said to myself, I, I have to uh, pivot and I think address what's going on and take all of these things that happened this week into an account. And so today I wanna to talk about abortion, which is actually a topic we've never covered here at Central. We are a church that addresses a lot of uh, hot topic issues or difficult to talk about issues, certainly, but we've never done this one. And I want to talk about abortion today and the way it relates to women's rights, the culture war, and theology. How's that for an ambitious Sunday morning topic <laughs> or a conversation starter, right? Uh, and I want to be very sensitive today, as Max was at the top, and recognize that there may be people here or people watching via Zoom or people listening later to the podcast who have firsthand experience with abortion. And I just want to say that it's okay to feel whatever you're feeling today. My hope is that whatever gets said by me or by anyone else is, I hope that it's said with the utmost respect and understanding and compassion. That's, that's my goal. I also don't want to center my voice today, to be very clear. Uh, I think that would be counterproductive and missing the point. Um, so instead, I want to center women's voices, and in particular, two women um, that have had, I think, a lot of influence here. I'm, one of them being Rachel Held Evans, the late Rachel Held Evans. Um, and uh, she had incredible insights into these matters. And also Kristen Cobes Dumez, the author of the book that we're, how timely is this, reading for book club, you know, Jesus and John Wayne. So I want to read some things they said about this topic, this matter, uh, about abortion and women's rights and how it all intersects with theology and American politics. And then I'm gonna comment on it a little and then hopefully stimulate uh, a conversation this morning. It's okay if we don't, but my hope is that we do. I think Rachel was really good on this issue. And actually you can go online and still find on her blog, numerous articles she wrote over the years about this. And she really gave it a lot of thought. And she was really good on this issue because she had criticisms for both sides of the debate. I think she obviously aligned more with the pro-choice side, but hers was a nuanced view. 
In her own words, she, quote, grew irritated with the pro-life movement. It's inconsistency and simplistic solutions and also grew irritated with the pro-choice movement for its callousness and disinterest in discussing the, the very real ethical concerns surrounding the termination of a pregnancy, end quote. To be clear, I think what bothered her most about the pro-life movement was how it hypocritically claims to care about babies but actually just mostly cares about birth. Once a baby is born, pro-lifers or conservatives tend to get really quiet about state or federally, federally funded programs to support the new child and its family. You can't really be pro-life and, and be the so-called great defender of children and not care about what happens to, to them after they are born. But this is precisely often the case in the pro-life movement. On the other hand, Rachel had criticisms for the pro-choice crowd. She wrote this, what frustrates me about the pro-choice movement is the lengths to which advocates go to dehumanize unborn children and sanitize the abortion procedure, reducing life to nothing more than a cluster of cell cells and the implications of pregnancy to little more than a choice. The word fetus is used instead of a child. Efforts to encourage women to receive counseling prior to an abortion are stubbornly opposed. The argument is framed around the woman's body exclusively, as if the fetus is inconsequential and pro-life advocates are characterized as being against women's rights. Frankly, as a woman, she writes, and as a feminist, I don't like people invoking my rights to unilaterally support abortion, end quote. Rachel also spoke about how the Bible is silent on this issue. Do a word search on the Bible and you will not find the word abortion. But it's not silent about how we should treat the most vulnerable among us. And this is where things get theologically dicey. If we progressive Christians claim that God is on the side of the vulnerable and the powerless and those with no voice, how can we completely ignore the plight of unborn children? Yes, we want to support, defend, and advocate for women, particularly poor women of color who are disproportionately affected by this issue and the financial and the social burdens therein. We absolutely need to support and advocate for them, but does this mean that we cannot also advocate for unborn children as well, or at all? Are they mutually exclusive concerns? Such questions highlight just how complicated these matters really are, and how they're not there are not simple answers here, and I think Rachel understood that perhaps better than most. And if I may be so bold, I think if pressed, she would say that she was more concerned about a woman's well-being and a woman's rights over her own body, especially early on in a pregnancy. But as that pregnancy progressed, I think Rachel felt that the child's rights come more into play. Now, even that is an oversimplification 
because it doesn't take into account the ho a host of health issues that can come into play during a pregnancy for both the mother and the child. But if I had to say what I think Rachel thought, I think that's perhaps close to it. But let's be clear about why this is such an issue in our country. Why is this such an issue in the church? Been so for so long. Kristen Cobes Dumez is really good here. She writes this in Jesus and John Wayne. As late as 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention, which of course is the largest denomination in the United States and the most prominent evangelical denomination, most influential, as late as 1971, they passed a resolution urging states to expand access to abortion, Southern Baptist Convention. But with the liberalization of abortion laws, and as abortion proponents began to frame the issue in terms of women controlling their own bodies and reproduction, evangelicals started to reconsider their position. And yet, even after Roe v. Wade in 1973, evangelical mobilization was not immediate. Only in time, as abortion became more closely linked to feminism and the sexual revolution, did evangelicals begin to frame it not as a difficult moral choice, but rather as an assault on women's God-given role on the family and on Christian America itself, end quote. This is what makes Dumez's book so good, and I highly recommend reading it. It's, it's heavy, though. <laughs> Every page is like just tons of history. She's so good at contextualizing abortion and women's issues in the greater context of these related concerns among evangelicals of preserving so-called you know, traditional family values. You've probably heard that term before, traditional family values, which is code for preserving the nuclear family, preserving you know, traditional marriage, and preserving traditional gender roles, i.e. male headship, patriarchy. It's all related, and it's all about power, and primarily preserving white, straight, Christian, male, power in the home, in the church, and within the greater culture. The issue of abortion for evangelicals is really about all that. And you can't understand the heat behind the issue without understanding really all that. Which is to say what the pro-life movement really fears more than anything else is not that some women might get abortions, but they fear that by losing the abortion fight, like losing the gay marriage fight, they will lose power. They will lose influence. They will lose the culture war. They will lose it to the secular left and people from different walks of life, of course, non-Christians, which is to say that they believe that by losing the culture war, of which abortion is a big part, by losing the culture war, they'll lose quote, what makes America great. That's what this is all really about, which again is really just another way of saying it's all about power. Who's in power? Who gets to wield power and who doesn't? 
whose voice carries the most. And actually, there's a deeper theology behind all of this for evangelicals, which can be described, and I've talked about this before, as a doctrine of chosenness, a doctrine of chosenness, which I get from our friend Tad DeLay. And it's this idea that America is a chosen nation and others are not. Christianity is a chosen religion and others are not. Um, men are chosen to govern, rule, and lead. And in general, women are not. Traditional marriage is chosen. Gay marriage is not, etc. These are the social hierarchies we're told God has set up and woe to anyone who challenges them. And here's the thing about being chosen. Being chosen means never having to second guess yourself. Being chosen means never having to question the harm you might be causing because after all, you're chosen. And that's the bottom line. What else needs to be considered? You are chosen and the other is not. For tens of millions of American Christians, there is this underlying doctrine of chosenness that informs much of their worldview and how they understand complex issues like abortion, marriage, gender roles, sexuality, national identity, etc. But again, at the end of the day, it's really all about power. Who gets to wield power? Who gets to wield power over others? And who, who doesn't? I want to finish today and open it up for discussion by saying that like Rachel and Kristen, I'm obviously uh, on the pro-choice side of the matter, but I don't remember how I got here. <laughs> I was thinking about this this week, and I'm like, when did my views on all this change? And I can't really trace it back. Um, my changing views on abortion just weren't a big part of my spiritual journey or deconstruction. They were more, they were more ancillary than primary. And I think that's common maybe for a lot of us. I don't know. I'd like to hear from you in a minute. I, I think once I began identifying less and less with evangelicalism and, and the right, that my views on this changed, you know, as well, accordingly. And they're still changing because this is a complex issue. And uh, I, I think I have a somewhat nuanced view like Rachel does, but that's me. And I want to hear from you now, particularly women, for those who are present and those who are joining us via Zoom. My understanding is that you can chime in as well. I want to hear primarily from you today, if possible. I want to center your voices. And uh, guys, you're welcome to chime in too. But um, I want to begin by asking, of course, you know, ladies, what are your thoughts about this topic, about what Rachel Held Evans said or Kristen Cobes Dumez? How has maybe your thinking shifted on this matter or is shifting currently? What ideas or experiences inform your point of view? Um, does anybody want to get us started today on this? Yeah, Jen. And I'll give you the mic so people can hear you online and the podcast. Um, first of all, thank you for um, asking the women to speak first. <laughs> <laughs> That's important here. Um, I just finished Jesus and John Wayne this past week. Um, 
and one of her kind of things that it wasn't a critique but something that she mentioned about kind of the third wave feminism that happened in the 70s was that um it didn't leave a lot of room for the women who couldn't necessarily uh leave a marriage and support themselves and their children or like break free from this patriarchy you know specifically working women women of color like it didn't leave a lot of room for their kind of lived experiences and needing this kind of support you know not necessarily financially and economically being able to be this like feminine mystique right and i think that um what you said what rachel held evans said about um kind of not considering not having leaving space kind of for it's not all or nothing yeah you know i think that's really important to kind of uh yes it is about power but i think it's important to for us to leave space for people who are somewhere in the middle you know to be okay with someone really needing to process like yes i need an abortion but i i have these feelings about this child or fetus or whatever you want to call it leave that space for them to kind of have those beliefs and not vilify them for that so i think that's really important to remember in this so yeah anyway yeah no thank you for those remarks um yeah I'm glad you heard you heard that this morning or at least from Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that she really wanted to get across. But yeah, thanks, Jen. Um, somebody else. Yeah, Jesse. Oh, thanks, Jen. I mean, I have lots of thoughts on this. It intersects. <laughs> Good. With, Please share them all. It intersects with the research I do. Um, but I also want to follow up with what John was saying, like the thing you didn't address that I think is really key in this conversation in terms of evangelicals is the roots of racism in this conversation, because it did not become a major issue for evangelicals until segregation, desegregation of schools, and it became the religious rights, one of their three capstone issues that they, over the last 40 years, have poisoned, I would say poisoned the evangelical movement around. Um, gay marriage being the other, one of the other two, the third, I can never remember the third because the third is never as important as those two. Um, and it was really a guise for um, rallying around something else besides desegregation. And I think that's a key thing that, especially the pro-life movement, if we call it that, um doesn't ever want to acknowledge in their history and a lot of people like um emily joy have really gone back to that is one of the key things it's very racist it's very white it's very patriarchal um and i was also thinking abortion for me is a key part of my deconstruction um the conversation around body autonomy because i grew up being taken to abortion anti-abortion rallies and say that again you grew up being taken to anti-abortion anti rallies rallies Got yeah it. like as a child being taken to protests and 
you know, my mom's an artist. So my mom's posters were never allowed because they were too graphic. And then um, growing up and going to high school and going to college and reading more about, you know, this SPC, Southern Baptist Convention in 1969, pulling their women's ordination for the first hostile takeover. And then in the 90s, the second hostile takeover of the SPC where patriarchy is very entrenched. Um, and starting to get a better view on the specifics and the numbers and the statistics, like most abortions happen in the first 12 weeks when you're more likely to have a miscarriage in the first 12 weeks. And then becoming pregnant and miscarrying early on and then becoming pregnant and caring to children full term, that made me militant in my stance on body autonomy because of the lack of choice that you have as a pregnant person, even in a progressive place like California, I was never allowed to have a choice on the procedures that would happen as I'm pregnant, because as a pregnant person, you lose your body autonomy. And there's something about that that's really unique because no other person is told, oh, your cancer matters more than your body. Your cancer matters more than your choice. If you're a cancer patient, you have the option of whether or not you follow procedures or go through. But for me, I wasn't allowed to have a midwife as my provider because I had gestational diabetes. So there's a lot of loss that happens and there's a lot of nuances that we don't talk about. We don't talk about the fact that most late stage abortions are people who want it, who have wanted pregnancies with birth defects that the, the fetus or the child is not going to survive more than several hours or several days outside the womb. And that's, those are complicated conversations that we've had every time we've gotten pregnant. What are the parameters of terminating a pregnancy? Um, and we don't, we don't talk about those challenges because, and you definitely don't hear about those dynamics in evangelicalism because that shatters the perspective. And so many people in those spaces go through thinking a DNC is, or a miscarriage is, is not an abortion when they both are. And they, you go through and think, you know, oh, fixing my, my infected uterus is not an abortion. Technically those are all abortions because we're not having a nuanced conversation about birthing. We're not having nuanced conversations about the history of when religion defines what a life is. None of the major religions define a life up until like 1900s as, you know, earlier than 20 weeks of gestation, which is a half pregnancy. But we don't have those conversations. And the Bible does have a formula in the Old Testament for abortion. We just don't call it that. There's the formula in Deuteronomy, and then there's the... What is that? Can you share that? There's enough scholars in this room who could do this. There's, I should memorize it. There's a formula in, it's in Deuteronomy, and it's, it's tied to patriarchy. It's a mixture of um, elements that a woman takes to prove whether or not she's had an affair. And if she's had an affair, then she miscarriages. So the priest is enacting an aborticide um, to prove patriarchy. And we have parameters around in the Old Testament 
a, a maternal life matters more than whether or not she's carrying a baby. If you are pregnant and you inflict a miscarriage in the Old Testament, you're not sentenced to death. You do pay reparations. But if you kill the mother, you're sentenced to death. And so there are nuances within the text that evangelicals don't want to deal with. There's a lot more. Yeah. Like, no, thank you for sharing all that. I mean, it just reminds it's numbers us. Numbers five. Is what's the, that? Numbers five is the abortion. Numbers five, yeah. I mean, just, I mean, thank you. It just reiterates just how complicated. And once you mix in theology and all of these philosophical questions about the nature of what is life, <laughs> when does when does autonomy or you know life begin or something like that? I mean, these are incredibly you know, complex questions don't really that don't really have answers, frankly. Uh, but yeah, no, thank you. Um, anybody else want to share? Here, I'll take the mic. Anybody else want to jump in, guys? Now I guess we could invite them. Yeah, Jim. <laughs> now he's worried. Yeah, I know. This is my friend-in-law. Um, is this characteristic of wanting to wield power a characteristic that is found both on the right and the left? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, the desire to, to wield power, to have control. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And the way that power gets expressed can be different. You know, and the history of the way that power has been expressed in specific matters looks different, certainly in this in this nation too, right? Yeah, but you're absolutely right in saying, you know, this this is really a power struggle. You're absolutely right in pointing that out. Yeah. Uh, other thoughts, comments. Um, Emily, oh, your daughter. You want to pass the mic to your daughter? <laughs> Get the whole family here. Um, I mean, I was just gonna say that, like one thing that I don't think gets talked about very often or often enough is that it's possible to be pro-choice and anti-abortion for yourself for to say I even as strongly as I don't believe that someone you know should that I you can believe that it's morally wrong to have an abortion and still be pro-choice <laughs> and say that it's not a legislative issue. I mean, even when, and I think back to like, when Aaron and I were a lot more conservative in our beliefs and we were standing in line in Studio City waiting to vote on Prop 8. And I don't remember, because it was so confusing whether it was like, yes or yeah, no, I like which was either. which to vote support, you know, but we were debating because at that time we were, not supportive of gay marriage in the sense that Aaron would not have performed a gay marriage. But in the end, he was like, well, ultimately, I don't think I can like legislate my moral beliefs on other people. And so he voted whatever way, you know, supportive of, of Prop 8 or gay marriage or, you know, whatever way that was. Um, and I just think that that's like a nuance that doesn't get talked about enough that you can say, I, as a Christian, am against abortion, and I think that it should, and then I, I would hope that you would then be working in all these other areas, in healthcare, in, you know, 
subsidized childcare and minimum wage, you know, to, to support people to be able to support that, you know, that pregnancy, if that's what you believe. And so I think that it's just so crazy that, um, that that's, those policies don't go hand in hand with being pro-life. Um, yeah, just because, you know, and I'll just share my, you know, one of the scenarios that I had experienced that caused me to really change the way that I thought on the topic was my very first day in um, labor and delivery in nursing school and had to do a rotation in labor and delivery. And my patient for that day was a couple who had a child who um, they discovered in utero had no kidneys. And you think, oh, well, like you can get kidney transplants and dialysis and, you know, there's, you can live without kidneys, but unfortunately, if a baby in utero doesn't have kidneys, they don't produce urine and the urine is what creates the amniotic fluid and the amniotic fluid um, being breathed in and out of the lungs in the uterus is what causes um, the lungs to develop. So a baby who is born without kidneys can't survive because their lungs won't develop. And you know, and, and this is very triggering, I, I apologize. Um, but I had to, um, you know, sit with this family for hours after their baby was born, just waiting for it to pass. And, you know, walking with a newborn baby that has just passed, me personally had to take it down to the morgue. Um, I mean, you just can't, I just can't, ever imagine telling someone that they had to go through that experience when you know ahead of time before the baby is even compatible outside of the womb to say that you have to go through this experience and that's what people just don't realize and is that these after 24 week abortions they're not <laughs> babies that were just you know people aren't having abortions at 30 weeks because it's you know to use it as a birth control like those were wanted pregnancies. Thanks, hon. Uh, Max, yeah. I was just, um, I think it's important to say that in this conversation, I think a lot of really complicated things get made too simple, like Emily was trying, and a lot of simple things get made <laughs> to be too complicated, right? Mm. And, and to Jim's point too, I think it's really important to say that although there are different stances from our two major political parties, this shouldn't be just like a partisan thing, right? Um, and and I, as someone who's found myself to be very progressive, right, was very conservative, was raised very conservative, and very progressive now, been just very disappointed, like with all of our leadership in all of our parties of not being able to help create uh, better ways to have the conversation, right? I think, I think again, to Jim's point, there is power that is gained, and I'll just name it, like for democratic po politicians to have used Roe v. Wade being overturned for decades. And this has been an intentional political tool that they have used to come into power and stay into power, saying, hey, we're going to protect Roe v. Wade, we're going to protect Roe v. Wade. And they didn't, right? Like, I mean, I mean, we're, we're assuming that the draft will go through, like, but they didn't, right? Even when they had all of the, all of the, um, how, both houses of Congress, right? The, the Supreme Court, right? And the presidency 
over the last 20 years, all the times that happened, pe people have said like, you have to co codify this. Like, this is not, this is not going to stand forever if we keep just playing a political chess game with it. And they played a political chess game with it and it is now going away, right? And beyond that part, beyond, beyond the political side of it, I think, I think progressive people can often do a really poor job of making space, not, not that you know everyone needs to, but like as a whole, making space for, like what Emily said, people that are pro-life, right? Or, or pro-life and pro the ability to have an abortion, right? It's like, it's not like people who <laughs> support a woman's autonomy and legal standing like the idea of this being a necessary thing that as like Emily said, like this is, this is something that happens. And I think both sides kind of pretend like, well, that doesn't happen and that does, and that doesn't happen and that does. And suddenly it's come two completely different conversations, two completely different sets of reality, right? Um, and that in reality, this is probably the most nuanced <laughs> uh, topic that any of us have ever engaged in. It deals with life, right? It deals with some form of life in existence prior to birth, right? And nobody, it's everybody's best guess. We have metrics, right? There's science and medicine that we can use to have best guesses. But at the end of the day, this is something that is beyond our ability to just check a box and say, you are good, you are bad, based on this, based on that. Um, so anyway, I just, I, I, I feel like we so often get into like the back and forth and it's really important just to say like mothers, women, right? Non-mothers have been failed by both parties, um, by us, right? By men, by, you know, and Jesse laid this out too, right? By, by white supremacy, by misogyny, by patriarchy. Like this is a systematic failure. Um, and I, I just think it's really important <laughs> that we own that. Yeah, thanks, Max. Really good. Um, and I hear Rachel Held Evans in all of that, you know, and a lot of what she, and what Emily was saying. Like, uh, you're, I think Rachel was kind of in those nuanced places as well. But um, yeah, um, good stuff. Anybody else have any comments, remarks, questions? Hey, Aaron? Uh, yeah, who's that? Hey, this is Lincoln. Lincoln. <laughs> Welcome. Joining us from the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, yeah, this is weird. Uh, I've never done this in a, in a live service before, but uh, I just wanted to, to give a couple thoughts. Um, it's strange because, um, you know, uh, I think kind of like you were talking about um, abortion for me, uh, growing up religious wasn't exactly one of, you know, like the staples. It was kind of honestly like things like abortion and hell, they were kind of just like out there. I didn't really like think about it didn't really affect me personally so um as I went through you know deconstruction my my views have just kind of changed kind of like you I'm like okay like I don't really know when when I got like here but it's just kind of happened gradually and um you know I was thinking about um kind of like two different ways I feel like people approach abortion and I feel like maybe one of them is more like strictly scientific like well when is it you know a life when is it a child like when is it you know when does it matter, basically? And I feel like some people, I honestly, I the more conversations I have, it's more like the other side is the emotional factor of like, 
when is it a child? And like having now gone through, um, you know, IVF and IUI, like different ways to get pregnant, because that's the only way we can as a same sex couple, you know, there, there are like a lot of things that I never considered that are very closely tied to abortion. For instance, um, when I went through IV, IUI, um, I didn't realize that part of that process because of the drugs that they were giving me made it so that, you know, my body was releasing like multiple, like several eggs at the same time, meaning that I could get pregnant with up to however many eggs, you know, were in there, which means that my doctor had to sit me down and have a conversation about, okay, well, like considering different factors, your health, your age, all these different things, you might have to make that hard decision before it gets to whatever it was like eight weeks or whatever, if you're going to keep all of them, whether that was one, three, four, you don't know, right? You don't know until they're actually fertilized to know how many you have. So that was like one thing I was like, oh snap, like I've never had to be in that situation. And the same with IVF, you know, there, there are a lot of other risk factors, including like ectopic pregnancies, which I won't get into the scientific stuff at all, but it's like, it could gravely endanger my life. So same thing. So I think like, you know, as other people have been saying, there's a lot of nuance to like a lot of things that people don't really talk about as to, you know, what, what constitutes a life, what constitutes, you know, a baby. And I feel like from my experience, what I've learned is it's a baby when that person thinks it's a baby. Like if I lost a pregnancy at four weeks, I'm just as devastated as at the end of the pregnancy, because I want that baby. If I don't, then maybe that's a, a grayer area. And so that's why I think it's such like a complicated and nuanced topic, which is ultimately what, you know, switched me to being on the more liberal side of thinking, because it, it's too complex to just, you know, paint it with a broad stroke and say like, well, all of these pregnancies should or shouldn't happen, if that makes sense. Wow. Yeah. Um, you asked if that makes sense. Yes, in a way it makes sense. Uh, <laughs> just, wow. Thank you for that great perspective, Lake. And um, yeah. yeah, good stuff. Anybody else um, have anything they want to share? Hi, Aaron. This is Cassandra. Hey, Cassandra. Welcome. Hey, I just thought I would share uh, what I typed in the chat here. Okay, go ahead. Uh, my journey. When I was younger, I misunderstood what abortion was and thought it was a willy-nilly whatever form of birth control. So I was totally against it. And then I grew and my thoughts continued to change. For a while, I was in the, I'll never have one, but they need to be safe and legal for those who need them. And then I grew some more and I had my own baby and I changed my mind again, becoming more and more pro-choice. And now I'm in my 40s and it's 2022 and we're debating this again, which I think is bullshit. <laughs> so uh, my beliefs have shifted and I'm now what I consider pro-abortion. I believe anyone who wants an abortion needs an abortion and absolutely has the right to an abortion, period. As I explained to my six-year-old, if a person who is pregnant needs to not be pregnant, she needs to have a safe doctor who can help her become unpregnant. And that's it. I just think that the rest of this is a distraction. I love people. I love everyone. I want them to have the best that they can. But this is such an individual thing. I, it just has to be between a woman and her doctor. And it has to be legal. Otherwise, we go backwards. And I just, I can't see that. Well, that's yeah. it. I just wanted to share. I, cool. I, that's where I'm at. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing 
uh, those thoughts and, and reading what you shared in the, in the chat column there on, on Zoom. Yeah, really, really interesting conversation. <laughs> and we could keep going, right? I mean, this is um, not like we're going to solve anything here, but um, it's really important to keep all of these perspectives um, in mind and to continue to grow in our understanding of these things and dialogue, especially listen to women, um, us, us men. Um, yeah. Well, thank you for being here and thank you to all of you that joined us via Zoom and uh, to all of you who are listening to the podcast. Thank you for, uh, for doing so. And um, we should probably conclude there, let people go to, I guess, brunch if they're going to brunch. But uh, otherwise, um, thanks so much for being here, everybody. Go in peace.